Amen. All right, well, it's good to be with all of you. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and while you turn there, I'm going to do a very brief review. We started the first of this year looking at the book of 1 Samuel, specifically looking at the life of who would become King Saul. In chapter 10, we saw that Saul was anointed to be king. He had a little fear and trepidation of this call, but he embraced it. Chapter 11, we see Saul leading very well, setting a great example of what a spiritual leader ought to be. Um, And then in chapter 12, we didn't actually look at that, but we referenced it. Samuel the prophet basically gives a retirement speech. He sees Saul starting to rise up as a great spiritual leader, and he feels like he can step to the background more. But then in chapter 13, we saw how Saul started to slip. He was supposed to wait on Samuel to come to offer the sacrifice, but as his men began to flee inside of the battle... He got a little worried, a little scared. He took matters into his own hands. He offered the sacrifice when he was not supposed to. And because of that, he was told that he would not have a dynasty. His son would not rule after him. Chapter 14, Saul is struggling. He's still getting some things right. He's still fighting the Philistines, the enemies of the Lord, trying to cast off the oppressors. But we see some of this mix of fear and pride kind of growing in his heart. And that brings us to chapter 15 this morning. So let's look at the first three verses of 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So a little bit of a history lesson here. Uh, when you read in the first uh, in Exodus and Deuteronomy that when the Israelites were leaving the land of Egypt to go into the promised land of Israel, the Amalekites at one point kind of chased them down. And specifically what they did, they attacked them for no reason. But really what they did is they picked off the stragglers. They went after the weak and just killed them. They were merciless people. Now, this is 300 years later. The Amalekites haven't changed. They haven't gotten any better. They're wicked people. They're oppressors. They might be a modern-day comparison like the Nazis in our minds. And God tells King Saul, the king of God's people, the nation of Israel, essentially the church in the Old Testament, to go and wipe these people out. Kill man, woman, and child. Burn everything down. Kill all the animals. Now, This is very bothersome to us for many reasons. It seems horrid, and in some ways it is horrid. It's horrible to think about. This is important to note. There is no nation on planet Earth today that is like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They had a very special, unique relationship with God as His covenant people. And so no nation today could claim the right to go and do this. And even Israel in the Old Testament could only do this when God gave them a specific command to do it. And essentially what God was saying is, these people, this whole city is so wicked, I want you to wipe them out basically as a sacrifice to me. Devote them to total destruction as a sacrifice to me. They were ruthless people, and probably it was for protection. Also, probably what God was trying to do is they were very pagan, and they worshiped all these false gods, and God did not want His people to be influenced by their paganism. Okay, now... Whether we like that or not, whether we understand it or not, it's very plain, it's very clear. God's instructions to Saul were very precise. John MacArthur says that God was really giving Saul an opportunity to redeem himself. 
with his obedience to still be a good godly king, but he's not going to do it. Okay, We're going to see really how Saul's pride and his fear continue to grow. So let's look first at his pride. Skip down to verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So Saul wins the battle. He easily could have obeyed. But he makes the decision, it's very clear, in verse 8, to keep the king alive. We don't know why. Maybe as a trophy. Look, I've got this king. He's now my servant. Maybe he wanted to exchange him for ransom money at a later time. We don't know the motive. And even the way in verse 9, but Saul and the people spared, and the Hebrew spared there, the verb is singular, which indicates Saul was really the leader. He made the decision, keep the best of the flocks. All the worthless stuff, go ahead, wipe it out, obey what God said. But the best stuff, let's keep it. And again, we're not 100% sure what his motives were. But part of what was going on with King Saul and his pride at this point is his success is starting to go to his head. He won a great victory in chapter 11. Chapter 13, the nation of Israel had won a great victory. Chapter 14, even though he did and said some stupid stuff, they still won a great victory. Chapter 15, he wins another victory. So even though there's been some discipline from the Lord, it's like, hey, God's still blessing me, and it's going to his head. One commentator said this, pride arising from the consciousness of his own strength led him to break the command of God. Now, this is Abraham Lincoln, but this is a pretty interesting quote when he was calling a national day of prayer during the middle of the Civil War. Listen to this and see if this maybe doesn't apply to even us today. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray. When God blesses His people... And this was true in the Old Testament, and it's true of us. Sometimes the blessings can intoxicate us. They can go to our heads. We can feel like I am being successful in everything I do, and it can lead to a little bit of, then I can kind of cut some corners in some places. I can play a little bit fast and loose with some of God's Word to me, because obviously He likes me. Obviously He's blessing me. Another commentator named Payne said this, There is in all of us an inclination to resent being told what to do. Don't you see that in your own heart? You're looking for a parking space and it says no parking, and you're like, that's a parking spot for me. But those in positions of authority and power are all the more reluctant to acknowledge anyone else's superior authority. The more place of privilege and power and authority that God gives you in life, be careful. You're in more danger of thinking, nobody can tell me what to do, not even God. Now back to the text, look at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Saul, excuse me, but and Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, we got to pause and talk for a minute about in the ESV, the word is regret. Some translations translate that word differently. 
But listen, the word regret there in verse 11 is very similar to our word in English, sorry, S-O-R-R-Y. And let me explain. It has a range of meaning. So if I got in a big hurry tonight or this morning and I was in a bad mood and I just threw my car in reverse and was flying out of the driveway and I sideswiped my wife's car, I sinned. I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't responsible. I wasn't being a good driver. I would go inside and I would say to my wife, I'm very sorry. I hit your car. We'll get it fixed. It's my fault. I take responsibility. I'm apologizing. I'm sorry. And we all understand that word would work in that context. Also, though, if my wife came home and said, I had a terrible day, and I said, well, what happened? She said, somebody sideswiped me in the parking lot, tore up my car. I might say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Now, what I'm doing in that moment, I'm not saying it's my fault. I was actually the one that did it in the parking lot, and I ran away and didn't tell you. Some stranger did it to you, but I'm grieved. I'm sad in my heart that it actually happened to you. You understand the way that word can work in two different ways. So when God says, I regret, he's not saying I'm apologizing. He's not saying I made a mistake. But what he's saying is, I'm sad in my heart. This exact same word is used in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, right before the flood, when God says, I regret that I've made mankind, they're so sinful. And it says, and pain filled his heart. Grief filled his heart. That's the point. God is saying, I grieve over the sin of Saul. Pain is in my heart because Saul has become so arrogant. Now, verse 12, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Now, listen, you don't have to be an expert in theology or Bible study techniques to realize when you start building monuments to yourself, that's a big sign of pride. And my guess is none of us have ever built a statue outside to ourselves in our front yard. But we do like to toot our own horn sometimes, do we not? And say subtle things to draw attention to our gifts, our success, our blessings. It's a bad thing. We are supposed to live and do life for the glory of God, not for ourselves. But oftentimes we can start to do it for ourselves. Look at verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, what's going on here? Maybe at this point, Saul is so self-deceived, he really thinks, Everything's fine. I did it. Much more likely, as we'll see from the rest of the text, he knew what he had done was wrong. And he knows Samuel tends to get on to him when he sins. And so because there's this sense of fear, there's this sense of insecurity, there's this sense of guilt and shame, rightly so, he seeks to cover it up with some false bravado, overconfidence. Everything's fine here, nothing to see. Just carry on, Samuel, pass on by. Everything's great. Matthew Henry had this to say, Thus sinners think by justifying themselves to escape being judged of the Lord. Whereas the only way to do that is by judging ourselves. Those that boast most of their religion may be suspected of partiality and hypocrisy in it. You hear what he's saying there? A guilty conscience oftentimes wants to start boasting about, but look at all the good I'm doing. Look at all the ways I'm serving. Look at all the ways I'm giving. Because what we're trying to do, we're trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to say, everything's fine here. Whereas Matthew Henry says, the right way, the humble way, the godly way is to be brutally honest with yourself. 
Be brutally honest with others. Most importantly, be brutally honest with God about your sinfulness. Here's my sin. I know my sin. My sin is ever before me. I'm sorry. And I repent. And when you do that, God won't have to judge you. When you judge yourself, God can be gracious. God will be gracious. So we see Saul's pride swelling here. Another aspect that we're going to see, it's all tangled together, is his people-pleasing nature. A lot of times when you have a sin of pride, you care about people-pleasing because what? You want everybody to like you. You at least want them to respect you. You want them to look up to you. It's very important to you. Listen, there is nothing wrong with wanting to be liked, right? If you're like, I really don't care what people think about me. In fact, if people hate me, it's no big deal. I love you. You're weird. That's not normal. You're supposed to like people. You're supposed to want people to like you. Like, I want people to respect me. That's good. You should want people to respect me. Nothing wrong with that. But when you start making decisions primarily in light of trying to curry favor with other people, that's the problem. Certainly when you start listening to the voice of people more than you listen to the voice of God. Not wrong to want people to like or respect you, but it's got to be, no, no, no. I want my Father in heaven to like and respect me much more than I want all the human beings on planet earth put together to like and respect me. And this is where Saul gets into trouble. Look at verse 14. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So he says, the evidence denies what you're saying. Saul. you say you wiped everything out. God said, utter destruction, total destruction. And I see a flock of animals over here. Verse 15, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now, guys, just notice, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 10? God starts asking Adam questions. Did you eat of that forbidden fruit, Adam? The woman whom you gave to be with me. Lord, it's not really my fault. I mean, technically I was there, but it was really you and the woman. It's y'all's fault. And he follows suit. Not my fault. The devil made me do it. Saul does it, and we do it. We are so quick to blame shift. It is a knee-jerk reaction. It's a terrible way to live. Look in verse 15 again, what he says there. He says, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. That might be the most honest thing that Saul says in this whole text. He's starting to realize, I don't have a real personal relationship with God. You do. This God is real to you. Not real to me. Not personal, at least. I mean, I've known people that have grown up in the South, grown up in great godly families, great Christian schools, great churches. And I meet a lot of these people in college, and I start to talk to them. And I'm like, listen, I believe that God has a personal relationship with people. I just don't believe He has a personal relationship with me because they feel distant from Him. Now, was this Saul's idea to steal the spoil and keep it? Or was it his men's? We don't know for sure whose idea it was first. But we know this, Saul was the king. He was in charge. He was responsible. So if he had told the men, we're not doing it, we're obeying God, we're obeying the prophet, he could have led the day. This is where you see his people pleasing. Even if they started it, he gave in. And he doesn't talk about his own sin. He talks about other people's sin. Just think about it in your life. If somebody came after church said, hey, I'd like to get coffee with you this week. You're like, great. You meet up and they say, I have something I want to talk to you about. You say, okay, what is it? And you say, I want to talk about somebody else's sin. I'm here to talk about somebody else's sin. Now, they probably wouldn't say it quite like that. They'd probably say, I've got a prayer request or something, right? 
But the bottom line is, as you listen, they're like, I want to talk about somebody else's sin. Let's just be honest. Most of us are going to be like, great, I'm all in. Let's, let's hear this conversation. But if they say, I want to talk to you about your sin, what's going to be your knee-jerk reaction? It's like, I think I'm getting a phone call. I got, I got you know what? I double booked. A little uncomfortable. So much easier to talk about other people's sin than our own. When my children were little and two of my boys might get in a fight and I might break them up, and I'd go talk to one, and I'd say, buddy, I want to talk to you about what you did. But that he, uh, hey, I'm going to get around to him. Maybe I already got around to him first. I'm not talking to him right now. I'm talking to you. And guys, even in marriage, roommates, business partners, godly mature people, I've heard stories like this, and I'm sure many of you have as well. If somebody's incensed about what somebody else has done to them, and you might ask them, in this conflict you're having with the other person, what percentage of it do you think is their fault? And they might say, 99%. I mean, I know I'm not Jesus, but I I feel like I did almost everything right in this incident. Okay, for for now, we'll give 99% to your wife. But I'm not talking to your wife right now, I'm talking to you. So let's talk about the 1%. That's not how most of us live. It's how most of us ought to live. Okay. I remember one time, tell a story of myself, when I had gotten into an argument with one of my sons. It started well. It did not end well. And as he went out of the room slamming the door, and it had gotten to be a pretty heated conversation, my wife is a great wife for me. This, this has happened more than once, unfortunately. She'll say, would you like some feedback? And usually in my heart, the answer is no, I don't want any feedback. I'd like a compliment. Uh, I'd like encouragement and support. I don't want any feedback. But nine times out of ten, either because I'm trying to appear spiritual or maybe I'm actually having a Holy Spirit moment, I'll say, yes, please give me your feedback. And one time as she started giving me feedback, I literally said this. And before I could, you know, you heard, I heard the words coming out of my mouth. I realized how stupid it was, but it was too late. Here I was, a 40-year-old man saying about a teenage son but he started it. <laughs> it's easy to do, is it not? It's not my fault. It's not mainly my fault. Pride, people pleasing. We want to keep up appearances. One commentator said this though Saul acted religiously, we're going to have a sacrifice to Jesus. He actually did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Arnold says this, partial obedience is disobedience made to look acceptable. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? There was probably greed involved. And do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 20, And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought... Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, so he's doubling down, still didn't get the message. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. 
argumentation, deflection, rationalization. Look at what Samuel's going to say. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. See, in sacrifice you offer a gift to the Lord. Here's something costly to me, but I give it to you. In obedience, you give yourself. I'm the gift, God. Whatever you want. Full surrender. Evan says this, to sacrifice with wrong motives is worse than no sacrifice. Sacrifice was a way to express desire to love God. So when we're just going through the outward trappings of ceremonies, guys, coming to worship, doing, putting the money in the plate, singing the songs, taking the Lord's Supper, checking all the boxes, doing your read through the Bible in a year plan, but then through, and throughout the week, the way you treat your family, your customers, there's not obedience, there's not love, there's not graciousness. God gets to where he hates our singing. If there's not a life of, listen, not about the perfection of your life. It is about the direction of your life, the sincerity, the genuineness of your love. Look at verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel's saying, when you know something specific that God has told you to do, and this is not all the time. A lot of times there's gray issues we're not sure about. But when it's crystal clear and you say, I'm not doing that, it's the same as witchcraft, sorcery, bowing down to a false god. I mean, we'd say, I'm a good Presbyterian person. I live in Florence, Alabama. I'd never do anything like that. I'd never bow down to an idol. I'd never even play with a Ouija board. But he's saying at some level, a direct, intentional breaking of the command of God is like swearing loyalty to Satan. I wish Satan would give me some advice on what to do today. That's how serious it is in the mind of God. So I just ask us, whose voice is honestly more important to you? God's or every other human being put together? Who do you care about pleasing? Who do you care about honoring? Who do you care about getting a smile from and the respect from? There's pride, there's people-pleasing, and then last, there's pretense. There's just a, a fakeness. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And it's like, wow, where'd this guy come from? All of a sudden, honesty, humility. I, you're right, I sinned. Broke it, and I'll get to the heart, man. I'll get to the sin behind the sin. It was fear. It was the people pleasing. But did you notice why he gets so humble, so honest, seemingly in verse 24? Did you notice the last thing of verse 23? God has also rejected you from being king. When he heard that God said, you're not going to be my king anymore, when the painful consequences came crashing down, that's when Saul started to get humble, started to get honest. He said the right thing, but he didn't really mean the right thing. And we're going to see he didn't do the right thing. I mean, guys, just think about it. At any point that he wanted to, he could have said, I'm sorry, we're going to kill all these animals right now, and I'll go chop the bad king's head off. He never does that. He's playing politics. Some of you will be old enough to remember January 26, 1998, the president was accused of having an affair with a young intern. And 
standing behind almost like a podium at some point. He gave a press conference. where he, And listen, I'm not making a political statement here, all right? This is just, this is a spiritual statement. But I think it will resonate. Literally, he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. And then I think it was August later where he had to come back and say, ah, I did have an inappropriate relationship. Why? Because he was busted, there was evidence, and because it was hurting him politically. When consequences come to bear, we tend to have what I call Clinton repentance. You caught me, so I guess I might as well go ahead and admit it. And listen, this gets Democrats and Republicans, all sorts of people, and kings of God's people. But it's not really repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, verses 8 through 10, talks about two different kinds of sorrow. There's worldly sorrow. It's really just, I'm sorry I got caught. It leads to death. There's godly sorrow, and you know how, you know the real difference that you know between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Godly sorrow always leads to real repentance, not just in words, but in actions. You change. Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. You see what he really cares about? We're supposed to have this big worship service. We got all these animals. All the elders are expecting it. And you're the one that's supposed to do the worship service, Samuel. They know you're here. I'm going to look like a fool. People are going to know something's wrong if I go to the worship service without you. So can we just put this behind us? Please just get on my arm and let's walk to the service together. He cares about appearances. Look at verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe. And a lot of times in ancient times, this was like an official way to supplicate to somebody. You might go to a king and grab the edge of their robe. It was almost like a type of prayer. Please hear me, tugging on his robe. The end of verse 27, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. And this would be the other use of that word. God didn't make mistakes. God didn't apologize. God said you're not going to be king anymore. It's over. It's done. He's not going to change his mind on this. It's done. You're not going to be king. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned. So again, it it starts out sounding something. Man, here's Saul repenting. Not really. Because look at, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. He just cares about appearances. And so Samuel finally gives in. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord, going through the motions. Skip down to verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. It's about 10 miles apart. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What's going on here? When Saul decided for the rest of his life, never want to talk to Samuel again, rest of Samuel's life at least, that means he doesn't talk to God anymore. He's not praying anymore. He's not seeking God. He's just kind of giving up on this whole thing. God's written me off. I'll write write him off. No repentance. Not real seeking. Not real brokenness. Not real desperation. Not real neediness. Not a clinginess. And the prophet and God, there's grief. They're sad. In a sense, typically, mourning like this would come after somebody's death. But essentially, Samuel the prophet is mourning him now. The kingdom's dead, at least the kingdom of Saul. Saul's kingship is dead. There's a lot of applications that we can draw from this, guys. 
Okay? The first is this. There's never a good excuse for sin. Right? If there was a good excuse for sin, be, it's going to make my worship better. Saul tried it. It didn't work. There's never a good excuse for sin. Okay? The second one is, as soon as you are aware of sin in your heart, whether it is pride, whether it is people-pleasing, whether it is some kind of deception, as soon as you catch it, repent then. Repent quickly, repent fully, because if you don't, it will just snowball. It will get worse. You will find yourself doubling down, right? We probably all had the experience of telling one little small white lie. I wouldn't even call it a white lie. It was an exaggeration. And then what do you find yourself having to do? Telling just a little bit bigger lie to keep that one going. And the next thing, you're getting into all sorts of trouble. As soon as you're aware of the sin, confess, repent. The third thing, when you see repentance in your own life or maybe somebody's own else's life, and the main thing that seems to be driving or motivating that repentance is just the fear of consequences or the pain of consequences, be very suspect. It's probably not a genuine change of heart in you or in that other person. The fourth, we must learn by the grace of the Lord to really say, I really only care at the end of the day ultimately about what God thinks about me. And as long as I can say I'm right with God, God is pleased, God is honored, God is smiling, if the rest of the world is frowning at me, there ought to be a sense that I could say I can laugh. Because God's for me. If God's for us, who can be against us? The fifth, fear, pride, and people pleasing, they have a deceptive quality about them. There's a sense in which you are trying to make yourself appear better to others than you really are, right? You're trying to constantly put your best foot forward. I heard a friend of mine doing a marriage, and he said, you know, the problem is in dating, we're always putting our best foot forward. You know what marriage is? That second foot comes forward and joins it. But we're experts at this. The perfect Instagram post, Facebook picture with the right lighting and all this, and I always put my best moments out there. Look at how great and put together I and my family are. We're wonderful. And so... That deception of other people, here's what's really scary. This might be the scariest thing this morning. When you try to deceive other people long enough, you know what eventually starts to happen? There's a type of self-deception. You start to believe your own press release. The stuff you're telling everybody else over and over and over again, you slowly start to buy into it yourself. Maybe I'm not that bad. Maybe I didn't really mean that. Maybe I didn't really say that. I was talking to a young man, a guy in college one time I was discipling who had some really bad stuff in his history, and he finally got to where he was opening up with me about it. He said, you know, for years, and he was the primary instigator of it, he said, for years, I just tried to convince myself that never really happened. I never really did that. And we all do that at some level. And the last point of application would be this. Maybe the worst sin of all is refusal to repent. We're all sinners. We're going to keep sinning. Until we see Jesus face to face, there will be more sin in my life. There will be more sin in your life. We cannot perfectly stop it. And so maybe the worst sin is when we notice sin is to not repent, to double down in our sin. Paul David Tripp says this, If we are afraid to confess sin, we are sadly living in a state of functional gospel amnesia. Hiding sin is burdensome. Manufacturing non-answers to probing questions gets exhausting. The gospel will humble you because it requires you to confess that the greatest dangers in your life live inside you, not outside you. Do you really believe that? The biggest problems in your life and my life is what's in my own heart and what's in your own heart. Not what's going to happen in the next presidential election. 
Not your spouse, not your roommate, not your kids, not your family members. Your biggest problem is always you, and my biggest problem is always me. Martin Luther said, I am more afraid of my own heart than the Pope and all his cardinals, all the people trying to kill him. St. Augustine has this great quote where he says, God, please deliver me from that sinful man, myself. It's a great prayer for all of us to pray. So in one sense, I can't point to one Bible verse for this, but I think I can point to a lot of Bible stories that would lead us to this. Maybe the greatest test of our spiritual maturity is this, how do you repent? It's not what kind of sins you do. It's not even necessarily how often you do the sins. It's more how do you repent? When you have sinned, can you really confess your sin, take responsibility, own it, grieve over it, hate your sin, but then genuinely repent, genuinely say, God, by the grace of God, I never want to do that again. And can you run back to a loving heavenly father and accept his love and his mercy and his covering? You got to have the whole package. You don't just need to die on a pile of self-pity over here. What was me? I'm so bad. You've got to finish the work of repentance by going back to the merciful God. We have a God that we can and should run towards with our sin and confession, not run away from with our sin and cover up. Now, let me go back to the, one of the points I was making at the very beginning. When we read at the beginning of this chapter about the idea that God said, hey, there's a city out there and I want you to go kill everybody, man, woman, and child, it's horrifying to us. Rightly so at some level. But to a similar and even greater degree that that is horrifying to us, any time when we willfully obey the Word of God, it's horrifying to Father God that His own people would look at His Word and just say, no, I'll do what I want. It ought to be horrifying to us that we could take the Word of such a merciful God and treat it so lightly. But we do it over and over and over and over again. How can there be hope for a people like us? Why aren't we devoted to total destruction? That's the real question we ought to be asking. Because ultimately, who did God give the kingdom of Saul to? Ultimately, he gave it to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true son of David. And Christ came to earth, and God gave him a horrid task to do, not to kill anybody but to let himself be killed for all the sins of all his peoples of all time. To go to the cross and drink the cup of wrath that you and I deserve. And to drink it all the way to the dregs. Christ was committed to total destruction by the Father in our place where we deserve to be committed to total destruction. And so guys, when we sin, we don't have to cover up. We don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to explain ourselves, try to come up with excuses or blame shifting or rationalization. We can say, my sin has already been paid for. It's already been covered. It's already been justified. I just run back to my Savior. And there's so much freedom in that. And there ought to be so much joy and power in that, that it stirs something in us that says, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And help me genuinely repent so that I will never want to sin against you in the same way again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a Savior you are. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Praise you that we have you as our King, as our God, as our Savior, as our great High Priest, as our substitute, as our covering, as our justification.
Lord, I pray that the truths in our minds that maybe we know in black and white would become HD, surround sound, and living color in our hearts. That they would burn and they would shine. How much you hate sin, how much you hate our sin, and therefore how much we should hate it and not play with it. But simultaneously, how merciful you are, how gracious you are, how tender you are, how quick to forgive you are when we will just confess when we will be open and honest and humble. Lord, would you make us like the psalmist? Lord, give us broken hearts, contrite hearts over our sin. But would you also restore to us the joy of your great salvation? We pray all this in the name of Christ, our King. Amen.